Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Welcome to Convert Central. I'm Kevin Sidik Lim, the host of Convert Central, and I'd like to welcome you to Season 3 of Convert Central. Our podcast focuses on the challenges that Muslim converts face along their conversion journey to help Muslims from all backgrounds to find a strong foothold in Islam. Follow our Instagram and LinkedIn page at Convert Central, and I look forward to sharing with you all the beneficial series we've planned for the year. For now, I'd like to welcome you to Season 3 of Convert Central. Welcome back to Convert Central in our Thinking It Through Episode 7. So Alhamdulillah, every episode we actually do a summary of all the previous episodes including the IG Live that we have done on Instagram, archived under our Instagram TV. So today we're going to do the same, we're going to try to keep it short, but our recommendation for this series is actually to go back all the way to the start of our series, which is the IG Live, talking about the framework that we have chose to tackle these big questions. Essentially, in thinking it through, we try to think it through with people trying to come into Islam, trying to come into religion in general, and trying to rationally uh, go to a conclusion in whatever path of religion we should choose. So these are big questions that we try to answer with regards to God, the existence of God, uh, what, what are the works of God in this world and how we can internalize it as human beings and then we go on to our lives. So um, without further ado, I'll just go into a summary first of our previous episodes and you'll start to see that from our IG life all the way to episode 7 today that we are recording, uh, it, all the knowledge and all the discussions that we are having, it builds upon each other. So it will definitely help in all your understanding if you were to go back to the first episode, the first IG Live, as, as mentioned, to start off your episode with us. So um, in the IG Live, as we mentioned, we introduced that when it comes to big questions, we have to have proper frameworks to answer them. If there's no structure, then we won't, we won't be coming to a conclusive rational answer. So the structure that we have, the framework that we have set upon is the Islamic worldview. So in episode one, subsequently as a podcast, we first established the proofs of the existence of God, being the bedrock of the framework that we're using to tackle these questions. And in episode two, we, we built upon this framework by addressing questions like, what are the attributes of God? And what are some questions related to his attributes? For example, can, can God create another God? Can God destroy himself? So we tried to answer that through the framework with the understanding of God and God's relation to man, the nature of God. So we move on to episode 3, we answered questions like, why are some humans born without a limb? And why are some born with extra limbs? And how do we rationalize that in terms of our uh, understanding of how God is and how, how is the will of man determined by the attributes of God? So we do that through the understanding of the nature of man and how we are actually manifestations in, 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 through our behavior, the attributes of God. And we, we, we do that by a key point of the podcast, by understanding the duality, the two aspects of the uh, the, two spe- the, the entire spectrum of the attributes of God. They are attributes of mercy. They are also the attributes of uh, power, majesty. So moving on to episode four, after we have talked about uh, or we have settled the, the belief in the existence of God, we have, we have understood what our nature is and the God, God's nature is, going by that thought process, one will start to figure out, okay, what about my will and God's will? You know, God is... Uh, all powerful, right? If he wants me to do something, do I have a choice? So we, we explored that realm. And there was, there was two-part series, uh, two-part episode, we talk about the nature of the universe, right? And in episode four, we answer questions like, why does God not make me die early if I'm going to be a sinner? And in episode five, which is the second part of this segment, we talked about questions like, if God is all merciful and all powerful, why are there Muslims to suffer in the world? what does religion or Islam per se say about the existence of inequality in the world? We talked about how um, having a calamity doesn't mean that God is unhappy with the country's people, but rather there are many, many aspects to and many different dimensions to how we can view a calamity, such as COVID-19. We discussed that on our podcast as well. So 
episode 6, which is the previous one, we moved on to talk about the afterlife. Because as we mentioned in episode 6, when we started off, one can believe in God, but might not believe in the afterlife. So we, we, we talked about how an afterlife makes sense in context of how we view our world, how that actually completes our understanding uh, about all the points that we shared from episode 1 to episode 5. So it's been, it's been a journey. You guys can see it's been a long journey. Uh, I'm sure me and Ustas, we've been, we've been thinking about this for at least a month now. We've been planning and recording this for a month now. We're coming to the end. And as we come to the end, we still realize that we are still only halfway through the testimony of faith one who one says when they come into Islam because we've, we've, we've actually approached the and we have talked about the part of Ashadu Allah ilaha illallah which means I bear witness that there is no God other than God but other than Allah. And then the second half, which is something that we will talk about today, we will talk about the second half of the testimony of faith by saying Ashadu Anna Muhammad Rasulullah. Means that I also bear witness that Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam is the messenger of God. So in episode 7, we will talk about the existence, the needs and the roles of prophets in a reviewed worldview, especially in Islam as a way of life. So by now, just a quick recap in, in case you guys have been wondering what I've been up to. Uh, one, at this point, should have already assimilated a couple of points that we shared in earlier episodes. Number one, existence of God as the basis to this entire framework and our lives in a macro perspective. Number two, the rational understanding of the nature and the works of God from our perspective as men and also from God's perspective that will allow us to gain an understanding to clarify matters like the interaction between God's will and our will and inequality and inequality we see in our lives. So number three, the existence and the purpose of other creations. For example, we term it the universe, other creations than men that will allow us to reconcile our own roles and purpose in this life in both being a revised jiran with power given to us to affect the things around us and the responsibilities that come with being a servant of God. And lastly, the fourth understanding we should have is that the existence and the purpose of the afterlife that will complete our understanding built by the previous episodes to give us a complete idea regarding what our life should be. So, of course, it begs the question, where does prophets come in in, in, in one's pursuit in religion? So, today we're going to answer that. We're going to answer questions like, why does God need prophets to communicate to us if he's all-powerful? And what does it mean when we talk about the second half of the testimony of faith, which translates to, I bear witness that there is no, oh, sorry, which translates to, I bear witness that Prophet Muhammad is the messenger of God. So right now, I'll pass my time to Ustaz, Dr. Mubarak, who will explain to us the essentials of prophethood before answering the questions that we have compiled from our listeners today. Bismillah, Ustaz. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Thank you, Brother Siddiq, for the summary of all the previous episodes. It's been a very mouthful summary from our brother down here and also a very, very enlightening journey for all of us uh, in reflecting uh, through. Uh, the whole uh, idea on how we relate ourselves with God, with human being, and also with uh, nature around us. As we have mentioned, as Brother Siddiq has uh, uh, discussed or uh, summarized, that the first six episodes was basically the discussion on the meaning of the first half of the testimony of faith, which state that I bear witness that there is no God but Allah. And this is the basis for the intellectual knowledge developed within the worldview of Islam. Now, we are moving to the second part of the testimony of faith, which is a testimony that I bear witness that Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, is the messenger of Allah. Or in another version, I bear witness that the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa is his messenger and servant. Now, what is the meaning 
and implication of this statement. I would there are there are a number of uh, meanings and implication, but I will share with you three most fundamental meanings. The first one. That statement indicates that prophethood is a universal phenomenon that has been experienced by humanity from the beginning of time. It also binds all the prophets with the universal language of divine unity, which is Tawhid, which is the first part of the testimony of faith. Sandown has the main message to be disseminated to humankind. All prophets declare that experienced reality comes from the one source and return to the same one source. Muslims has complete faith in every messenger of God from Prophet Adam, Noah, Ibrahim, Ismail, Ishaq, Musa, Isa, and all the prophets whom we have been informed their names and those that we, we do not know their names. Each of them was an exemplar of character to their respective communities. Each of them confirms the truth of the messages that came before them. Although the basic message of all the prophets and messengers is the same, each messenger also brings unique teachings that define the particularities of his message in respect to the time, geographical locations, and the communities that they were sent to. If Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, is a messenger of God, then Prophet Isa, peace be blessing upon him, is also a messenger of God. Prophet Ibrahim, Prophet Musa and others, peace and blessings be upon all of them, are also the messengers of God. The general function of the prophets is to guide people towards felicity. God sent them to remind people that they were created to be God's servants and trustee. The twin divine responsibility ordained upon us which we have elaborated within the topic on the nature of the human being. The prophets and messengers also warn their people of the consequences of shirking their responsibilities. Ignoring guidance will lead to righteousness and prevent felicity. That's the first implication. The second implication will be knowledge obtained through prophethood is the highest form of knowledge within the human realm. Now, this is the principle of transmitted knowledge. Knowledge transmitted to the community via the prophet has the highest authority in the life of religious people. Now, this statement is in no way eliminate the role of the intellect in the quest of knowledge. Within the Islamic worldview, revelation and the intellect complements one each other. They are not in conflict seeking authority over each other. It is more of a creative tension between revelation and reason, which has given birth to a huge amount of intellectual knowledge. Most of the time, our ignorance of the intellectual heritage is the one that blocks our intellect from seeing truth in religion. In fact, it is religion in general and the Sharia, divine law, which I will speak about it in the last episode, in particular, that provide the only full reliable source for a proper balance between revelation and the intellect. As we have discussed previously, the nature of the human being is that we have the freedom to choose the ikhtiar and the capacity to manifest the names of beauty and the names of majesty in our thinking and actions. We are constantly bombarded with our desires to an extent 
that many times our rational mind is blinded by our desires. Only the law, only the law that comes from the divine through the prophet can help us navigate these complex terrains of our own human nature with our interaction with the subservient universe, the nature of the universe, and other fellow human beings who are also having tensions with the desires in their intellect. As the knowledge of the prophets is the highest form of knowledge, the revelation they receive become the main source of guidance for the human being. Many religions around the world have their main source of their religious belief, guidance on their daily action, defining the good and the evil, and ultimately the guidance will guide their respective followers towards felicity in the afterlife. Now, the third implication to this statement is that the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, is the seal of prophets and 14 centuries of human history has proven this finality. Since the passing of the Prophet, no major religion has appeared upon the surface of the earth, nothing compared to the religions which preceded Islam, such as Christianity, Judaism, Zoroastrianism, and the likes. There have been religious movements here and there occasionally, or offshoots of two religions meeting each other as they have done in India. But there has not appeared a prophet such as the prophet of Islam and no universal message from heaven such as Islam since the 7th century and none will appear until the end of the world. Therefore, Islam is the final religion of the present cycle of human history. It is the last major world religion. By expressing in the most complete, total, and perfect manner the doctrine of unity, Tawhid, and by applying it all by applying it to all facets of human life, Islam is in a sense the very perfection of the message of unity expounded by the revelation, which is the Quran. Now, a very important point to clarify here is that. To maintain the particular excellence of the Quran and the finality and perfection of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, above all other prophets, is not to deny the universal validity of revelations, nor the necessity of revelations appearing in particularized expression, meaning that taking the Prophet has the finality and the Quran is the final guidance does not mean that the other revealed texts are invalid. To use a metaphor to illustrate this point is like all revealed religions are lights. Among these religions, the religion, the revealed religion of Prophet Muhammad وسلم, which is Islam, is like the light of the sun among the lights of the stars. When the sun appears, the lights of the stars are hidden and their lights are included in the light of the sun. Their being hidden is like the abrogation of the other revealed religion that takes place through Prophet Muhammad's revealed religion. Nevertheless, they do in fact exist just as the existence of the light of the stars do still exist. This is why we Muslims have been required in our articles of faith to have faith in the truth of all the messengers and all the revealed religion. They are not rendered null by abrogation. The Quran never criticizes the other prophetic messages as such, but it often condemns misunderstandings 
or distortion by those who follow the prophets, even the misunderstanding and distortion of those who follow Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. Thank you, Ustaz, for the answer and the summary of uh, what essentially prophethood is. And I'd just like to add on a few points that I've encountered myself when coming to Islam. Um, perhaps something that uh, stopped a lot of people from coming into uh, learning about religion when they, when they learn, they reach the part of the prof, part of prophethood is that even for myself, I'm thinking that um, because I grew up as a non-Muslim uh, in a secular school, learning through that perspective, right? And, and of course, it's a valid perspective to have uh, by, by the very fact that we are all in Singapore and, and we are immersed in that perspective. And, and hence, most of us will start off with that kind of perspective. And we see teachers from the circular way, from, from how we are brought up in schools, right? As, as a checkpoint, you know? Uh, we, we, teachers are here to facilitate our learning. And that, that, that's all, you know, after we, we, we finish learning a particular subject, we move on to the next teacher, we move on from primary three to primary four, maybe we change teachers and it doesn't really matter too much to us. So one, like myself in the past, have, may have wondered that, you know, what, why, why would prophethood play a part now in, in my life today? You know, given that the religion has been transmitted 1,400 years ago, we cannot deny the high stations of prophethood because um, like what Ustaz mentioned, Knowledge attained through prophethood is the highest form of knowledge, especially knowledge of worship towards God. Because we, 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 I think we mentioned this in the previous podcast before that um, there is a hierarchy to knowledge. I want to, want to think about it. Like, let's say for myself, I'm a student at SMU right now. The knowledge I'm seeking in learning a business, uh, my, my craft in business, would translate to a higher salary in the future. And that's why we pay more for university studies because it's an investment into the future. And, and, and this, the same thing uh, happens when it comes to religion. The, the reward of religion, what you're going to invest in and reap the rewards from is, is eternal goodness and eternal rewards in the hereafter. So this reward is better than any reward that we can even have in our imagination. So knowledge that allows you to attain this reward should be in the hierarchy, the highest of hierarchy because it enables you, it's an enabler to get to the greatest reward ever known to men. And, we, and that reward still, even right now, we can't imagine whatever we imagine that rewards that will be given to us, it will still be multiple force of the boundaries of our, of our imagination. So of course, the person who is teaching us and embodies the knowledge, of course, the knowledge of uh, the guidance to this life in general, he is he and, and all the other prophets that have been the messenger, uh, prophets of God, messengers of God as well, um, they will be held in high regards. I will now move on to something that uh, when it comes to prophethood itself, one will also think about the Quran, right? Especially in Islam. Because Quran is the miracle of, of the Prophet Sallallahu And then um, we come and think about the Quran and, we, and, and at first it comes to us, it, it seems like just a book, right? It, anyone can write a book. So, we, so now we have to understand what makes Muslims believe that the Quran is a divine relation, uh, revelation and that it was not just written by a person, right? So maybe Ustaz can help us shed some understanding on that question. Bismillah. All right. Now, before I answer this question, let me just uh, state some important points about the Quran. Right? The Quran is the central sacred reality of Islam. Its meaning words, sounds, the letters with which its words are written and the physical book in which these letters are contained, all of these are considered by Muslims to be sacred. So the Quran is not simply the human transcription of the word of God. It is the verbatim word of Allah 
revealed to the Prophet of Islam in the Arabic language which Allah chose for his last revelation. Hence, for how the Quran himself has said, we have sent it down as an Arabic Quran in order that you may learn wisdom. Now, in contrast to many other sacred books, which are very ancient, and the history of whose compilation is not really clearly known uh, to, to us, the Quran was revealed in the full light of history so that we know exactly when the revelation began and when it terminated, how it was revealed and under what circumstances it was revealed. All these are known and captured right, in documents that are used in the study of the historic, historicity of the Quran. Now, during the 23 years period of the prophetic mission, the Prophet wasallam. The Quran was revealed through him for humankind. The first revelation comprising the opening verses of the chapter that is called Blood Clot, Al-Alaq, revealed through the Jibreel on the mountain of light, Jabal Nur to the Prophet when he was 40 years old and the last part when he was 63, shortly before his passing off. During this 23-year period, the Quran was revealed to the Prophet on different occasions, as I mentioned just now, sometimes when he was talking with people, sometimes when he was walking, and sometimes even when he was riding. And all these are seen directly by the people who surround him, Muslim and non-Muslim. In each instant, the Prophet would utter the word of God and his companions would memorize it and remember it with remarkable power of memory which the ancient Arabs has nomadic people with a very rich poetic tradition possess. We cannot use memory theory in the common, in the contemporary time and compare our weak memory with the memory of the nomadic Arabs. We need to look into the history of the nomadic Arabs on how they have very strong memory. Now, gradually, the verses were assembled sometimes written on the bones of camel, sometimes on papyri, but most of all upon the tablets of the hearts and the breasts of the companions who heard the utterance from the mouth of the Prophet. Gradually, a larger circle of Muslim beyond the immediate group of the companions came to memorize the Quran as well. Now, after the demise of the blessed Prophet, as the number of memorizers of the Quran diminished, through wars and natural causes, the Islamic community felt that noble Quran had finally to be recorded and disseminated. And so what had been written down by the early Qutab or the people who had recorded the Quran, especially his cousin Ali and Hosu Zaid, two of his very close companions from the period of the life of the Prophet and the Caliphate of Sayyidina Abu Bakr on, was assembled. Finally, at the time of the Caliph Osman, the third Caliph, the complete text of the Quran was put together and systematized according to the instructions of the Prophet himself, resulting in the order of the 114 chapters which we have today. Copies were then made of the definitive version and sent to the four corners of the newly established Islamic world. Therefore, the 
compilation of the text of the Quran through its history. Uh, and this history is known within the uh, subject matter of the history of the Quran. Uh, is done in the public light. So in terms of anyone who wants to falsify or wants to add in errors or lie toward what is the Quran, it is, it is impossible because it has been carried out in the light of the public. Now, it is on the basis of this that all other copies of the Quran has been written. There are no variants to the text of the Quran, nor have there been any revision. There is only one text accepted by all Muslims, and it is this definitive book which stands as the central source of truth, guidance, and of inspiration for all Muslims. It must also be remembered that although we now think of the Noble Quran as a written book originally, it was a sonorous revelation. Revelation that is revealed word of sound. The Prophet heard the words of the sacred text and the words surrounded him and embraced him. This power of the Noble Quran as the spoken word remains to this day as a central reality of the sacred text. That is why many Muslims who are not Arabs and who know no Arabic at all are just moved to the depth of their being by simply hearing the recitation of the Quran. Tears will flow down the cheek of Muslims who don't even know the Arabic language when they are hearing the words of the Quran. There resides a divine power in the very sounds of the word of Allah which move the soul of the Muslim to its depth even if he does not understand the meaning of the words in Arabic. Now, going back to the question. This is a whole discipline, as I mentioned, in studying the compilation of the Quran, the history of the Quranic texts and others. All these different components of this subject matter are open to everyone, regardless of their religious belief, and has, moved, has shown through rigorous academic research that the Quran was not written by the Prophet. Anyone who has read the Quran knows that there is a lot of signs mentioned in the book that cannot be known during the period of the Prophet. Now, you can read Maurice Brukel's book with the title, The Bible, the Quran and Signs, where the author showed the miracles of the Quran from scientific facts. One point we need to take note. The Quran does not need signs to validate its authenticity. And the Quran is not a book of signs, as C-I-E and C-E, but a book of signs, S-I-G-N-S. Anyone searching the Quran will know that you cannot find contradiction in the Quran. Prophecy that are mentioned in the Quran during the Prophet's time are fulfilled after his demise and witnessed by his living companions. Now, let me just share one argument, uh, an example that indicates the Quran is impossible to be written by the Prophet. There is a chapter in the Quran that condemns his uncle, Abu Lahab. Right? In that verse of the Quran, Allah cursed Abu Lahab, his uncle, and also the wife of Abu Lahab, which means that he is condemned to hellfire. This verse was revealed 10 years before the demise of Abu Lahab. 
Therefore, for 10 years of his life, he has heard this recitation, this verse that has condemned him to hellfire. Now, Abu Lahab could just do one very simple thing to prove that the Quran, if it was written by his nephew, Prophet Muhammad, would jeopardize or would straight away destroy the whole foundation of the religion of Islam, which is Abu Lahab could have just embraced Islam and therefore that verse of the Quran becomes totally irrelevant. But for 10 years of Abu Lahab's life, that did not even occur to him that he could show the falsity of the message of the Prophet by just embracing Islam. Therefore, this clear example indicates that the Quran is not written by the Prophet. It is a direct word that comes from Allah through Jibril and given to the Prophet Thank you, Ustaz. Thank you so much for that. And truly, for myself, uh, this was one of the biggest topics that I was grappling with. That Truly, I, I used to think that this Quran is not something that anyone could uh, that anyone could actually write, right? And I recall when I was first reading the Quran, the first few uh, verses of the second chapter of the Quran, it says that uh, even it was uh, when I read it, I thought it was a little bit like bold, right? Like it, it, it gave a challenge that anyone can try to bring your witnesses to try to reproduce something like the Quran. And the next verse, the very next verse, it, it started to write, and, and and you and eventually you, you will not be able to do so. So I, when I first saw that, I was like, wait, this is so bold, right? Like, how can one know? From now to the end of time, no one is able to reproduce. There have been like geniuses such as like Shakespeare and, and more that have written literary um uh literary books that will, will stand from now to the end of time as, as respected articles of literature, right? So when I first read that, I was like, whoa, I was a little taken aback. But upon understanding, as you have mentioned, all these points about the Quran and how it combines so many in so so much in-depth understanding and comprehension of different fields of science into just one book, contained in one one uh a short twenty-three year span of, of of our entire human history, that in itself shows me that it's just not possible for one single human being to be the author of the Quran. And of course, as you mentioned. Uh, we, we should not view Quran as a book of science to prove whether things are correct or wrong, rather a book of science to for us to point back towards the one that has created the Quran and which the Quran is a verbal theme of his own words itself. So truly, thank you so much, Ustaz, for the explanation. And I will move on to the next question. So we, we talked about um why uh that that how Quran is authentically the words of God. We also talked about how rigorous the authentication of the Quran and how it is authentic, uh, rigorously uh, preserved to our current time, right? So let, let's go all the way back to the start. And, and the question goes like this. If God, if Allah is all-powerful, why does God need prophets to transmit information to us? No. He is all-powerful to will whatever he wants and create whatever system he wants. Again, power needs to be understood with wisdom and mercy. Therefore, he does not need the prophet to transmit information to us. But he has willed it in such a way that prophets will be among us human beings has selected examples that come from our own species to be able to bring to us that message from the divine to us. 
So therefore, the prophets are like your intermediary between what is divine and what is created, what is sacred and what is profane. So with a prophet in the in in the in the middle, it becomes the bridge for all of humanity to be able to understand that message and guidance that is coming from God. Now, he does not need prophet. Neither does he needs the angels. Right? Because he is all powerful. But he has willed it from his knowledge of things that should come into existence, that will come into existence, that will never come into existence. He has willed it that his message will be given to us or the guidance that is going to be passed to us will be passed to us through the prophets. So therefore, we need to understand it again from the perspective not just of power as how we understand power, but also to be understanding it from the perspective of wisdom and mercy. Thank you, Ustaz, for that. Something that I also really appreciate coming to Islam is that um, when we talk about learning a religion or a way of life, it's easy for us to just reject like a teaching where you can say that, oh, that doesn't apply to us, you know. God is saying this, you know, it doesn't apply to me because these standards are so high, right? But when it comes through a human intermediary, something that we also appreciate because it shows us that as humans, it is possible. It is not outside of human limit for us to strive towards the character of the prophet, peace be upon him, towards the actions of the prophet, peace be upon him. It allows us to easily learn the religion, not by reading or not by learning from a being that is not like us, but learning through the actions of the prophet. We can do as we do. We can emulate even if you don't understand. So I think uh, it's, it's, sometimes we can also see it as a big blessing. Imagine how hard it would be for us to learn religion if we didn't have a, a, a prophet or a human being just like us who, is, who has been practicing his religion and his entire life is a model for us to emulate. It would have been so difficult for us to understand some uh, aspects of religion. So I, I, I'm really thankful for the aspect of, uh, for, for Islam uh, to have uh, Prophet Muhammad wasalam, as, as a model to us all. Now move on to the next question, which is our last question for the night. Uh, and it comes to rulings, right? So Islamic rulings. Why are some Islamic rulings contrary to conventional science? So for example, sometimes uh, there, there, there has been instances where science has proven a particular ruling wrong and then uh, decades later, a new uh, form of science or new way of conducting experiments proves it right and goes back and forth. And ha- there's been debate as well uh, from talking about the wine, health of wine. Like if you drink a little bit, it's healthy. But why are Muslims still restricted from drinking it? So maybe you can give us some clarity with regards to this question, Ustaz. Right. Now, uh, again, we go back to this question of science. Uh, science deals with the changing dimension of this world of nature. Okay. So therefore, uh, science, we uh, the Islamic rulings that comes from the Quran does not require science to validate. Okay, uh, if we were to use a simple example on the health of wine, as people have said, the Quran do acknowledge the small amount of benefits of intoxicant, but emphasizes the huge harms of intoxicant. The harm outweighs the benefit in many folds, which all right, makes it why God, through his wisdom, has made wine forbidden once and for all, because the harms outweigh the benefit in many, many folds. So if you look at Islamic rulings, the Sharia, 
right? The Sharia has a few guiding principles. And this guiding principle is the safeguarding of life, the safeguarding of religion, the safeguarding of the intellect, the safeguarding of wealth, and the safeguarding of progeny. Progeny means your family ties. So these are the main objective of the Sharia, the divine law that is supposed to be safeguarding it. Not only it safeguard, but it also develop and nurture these five basic things that governs the human being. So therefore, you have to science looks at things only from a very myopic view. The scientific methodology is carried out through experimentation where you control so many other variables and then you change one or two variables and see what are the other, uh, what is the dependent variable, the change that all right, happens because of the change in the independent variable. There are many other factors that conventional science does not consider when they are carrying out their theorization or the experimentation. Whereas Islamic rulings that comes directly from the Sharia, from the divine law that is clearly stated within the Quran, comes directly from the creator who already knows what is the nature of the human being. So therefore, it does not require conventional science here again to validate whether is the Islamic ruling logical or not logical. Because the whole function of the Islamic ruling is to protect life, to protect religion, to protect the intellect, to protect the wealth, and also to protect the progeny of the human beings. Thank you, Ustaz. I think that's a very, very good explanation. I'm, I'm, this is the first time I'm also listening and understanding his, his perspective. I think it helps me to make sense beyond the ruling of wines. I was struggling with the ruling of uh, getting to know a, an opposite gender in an Islamically um, permissible way, in which I was struggling with the fact that, you know, I can control my own uh, my own desires, right? Why can't I hold the hand of the person that I, 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 I like, you know? So, and then I was thinking there's no scientific reason behind that. But now that you mentioned the fact that it's not because it's scientific, that's why we have Islamic rulings, but rather they have these objectives of the uh, Sharia, objectives that we, they want to protect, that's why there are these rulings. And in this context, I can see why, why these rulings make a lot of sense, not just in for us human beings, but for the community in general. So uh, thank you so much for providing such a good answer to, to the question. And, I, and, and that brings us to the end of our first part of uh, prophethood and Islamic rulings. I will get Ustaz to give a short summary before we end the podcast. Right, in the next episode, what we will deal with is we will look into the Sharia law itself, the divine law. How does the divine law provides a moral code of conduct uh, from the Islamic worldview and why certain laws are, made, uh, are directly being mentioned inside the Quran and some parts of the law are given a flexibility in terms of its changes all right, in accordance to the changing needs and environment within Islam. So therefore, we will look from that perspective of the divine law that has two components, the components which are permanent and the components which are changing. And how does this make it to be a law that is wholesome and also relevant throughout uh, the ages of human beings? All right. Thank you so much, Ustaz. 
uh, for that sneak peek. I hope all of us, uh, all of you guys are looking forward to the end of our series where we actually give a proper recap to everything we've discussed. And, and we hope that this series has also achieved its objective of helping all of you guys clear some of your queries you have about religion, be it whether you're coming uh, to Commerce Central just to gain a little bit more perspective about uh, religions in general, be whether you just want to learn a little bit more about Islam or be whether you are truly interested and want to become a Muslim. We hope that this series provides you a proper framework and Islam is a religion where we are not afraid of thinkers, we are not afraid of, uh, in fact, we are encouraging the people to seek knowledge, to think about uh, about things that we come into contact with because the more we believe in the fact that the more we think, the more we contemplate, the more it will lead us back to Islam. As we mentioned, the universe is a sign for us to remember and to discover God. So truly, this is something that uh, we, we've, we've actually set out to do. We set out to achieve and we hope that uh, coming to the end of the series itself, we have uh, achieved it in, in one form or another. So at this point of time, I also like to bring in the disclaimer that of course, this um points that we're trying to share, they are not definitive answers, they are not conclusive answers to the questions that you guys have asked, definitely there are other opinions to it. So we are trying to start the discussion and we're trying to start the ball rolling that you guys, you have, you guys have big questions and these are big questions and don't have to be afraid of asking them, don't have to be afraid of exploring the answers and asking your questions and wanting a rational answer. It makes sense, especially in the society that we live in today, we are brought up asking we are brought up to ask critical questions with regards to our academics so it's natural that we want to apply these skills or these things that we have learned from school and translate that to our pursuit for religion that's normal and we encourage that so we hope that this is a next step forward for us to discover islam for all the new generation and old generation alike to discover islam discover the, the best way of life and we hope that this series uh, brings us closer to closer to that so at this point of time i'm looking forward to the next episode the last episode i'm sure ustaz is also looking forward to the next and last episode but unfortunately we have to end our podcast here and i'll ask ustaz help to help us to end the podcast by reciting tasbir kafara and surah to asa bismillah bismillahirrahmanirrahim subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika ishadu wa la ilaha illa anta astaghfiruka wa atubu ilaik bismillahirrahmanirrahim wal asri innal insana lafi khusrin ilal ladhina amanu إلى الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات وتواصوا بالحق وتواصوا بالصبر صلى الله عليه رخلك سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين والحمد لله رب العالمين السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته